Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 through 30. Philippians 2, 17 through 30. My father, uh, as many of you know, went to be, went home to be with the Lord some years ago, but uh, he left a great deal of himself behind, and one of his lasting legacies to me uh, is a set of boxes about so, so big that are full of notebooks and journals from, uh, from his earliest youth, uh, early youth, he, uh, he used to chronicle things that were happening to him and uh, these notebooks are full of anecdotes and stories and results of his own Bible story and uh, Bible study and uh, one of my greatest delights is to open up one of those boxes and pull out uh, one of those journals and to read about his life. This past week I uh, found one from 1920. I just uh, realized while I was sitting there that it's almost 75 years ago. So my father lived until he was 93. So he was uh, probably in his 20s when uh, he wrote in that journal. And there was a a poem in there. Uh, I don't know if he wrote it or if he just picked it up because there's no attribution. uh, It's just the poem. And it goes like this. Some folks in looks take so much pride, they don't think much of what's inside. Now, as for me, I know my face can ne'er be made a thing of grace. So I just think that I shall see how God can fix inside of me. Then folks will say he looks like sin, but ain't he beautiful within? (laughs) And I thought that's a great summary of what we're, uh, we've been trying to say in the last few weeks that God's task is to make us beautiful within. Unfortunately, so much of our preoccupation is with being tanned, toned, and terrific. We we spend a lot of our time uh, trying to fix up the outside of us, you know, hours on our uh, Nordic track or uh, Stairmaster or pumping iron or whatever, playing tennis, playing golf, all of which are, are uh, good enterprises, but that becomes our focus, that becomes our preoccupation to make ourselves uh, look better. But I I can tell you after 61 years, uh, it's a futile enterprise. Uh, There is nobody that does not descend to decay. Paul is right when he says the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. That's the wonder of the gospel, that he is making us more beautiful with every passing day. That's the work that he's doing. So even if you look like sin, you can be beautiful within. That's the good news. Now, I think of the beauty of of our character as pre-evangelism. We have to tell people what's happening to us. We have to talk about the gospel. Otherwise, people just think we're together. But um, it's the work that God is doing in our in our lives that opens doors for us, that attracts people to Christ. When we understand grace, when we when we understand that we have available to us uh, God's resources, and when He is beginning to change us to look more and more like Him, people sit up and take notice. We've been talking about that over the the past few weeks. Our lives have a tremendous impact upon others. See, that's what authentic Christianity is. It's not getting 
the truth down. It's getting the truth into our hearts so that it really begins to transform us. Uh, a few years ago, we were going through the book of Titus together, and I pointed out that the theme of the book of Titus is adorning the gospel, that is, making beautiful the gospel. And, and two or three times in, in there, Paul appeals to different classes of people, different groups of people, young men, young women, older men, older women. And uh, he uses a, a word that means uh, to be beautiful, to let the, tra- the truth transform you, to adorn the gospel, uh, to, to make the gospel beautiful because you are someone who is very attractive. I think uh, that kind of fragrant life, a life that has about it the aura and aroma of Christ, uh, is a very persuasive argument. As I said last week, people look at us and they say, that's the finger of God. That, that, uh, that type of person can't be explained solely on the basis of any human capabilities. There's something going on that transcends our understanding. And that's very, very attractive to people. Draws them to the gospel. And perhaps the thing that, that more than anything else seems attractive to the world around us is that trait that Paul has been describing in this book is the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, that willingness to pour ourselves out for others. We come into the world self-centered, self-absorbed, thinking about ourselves, putting our own ambitions first, wanting what we want when we want it, pushing others out of the way, stepping over their dead bodies to get what we want. That's, that's the way we're made when we come into the world. The gospel begins to change all of that, and we get more interested in others than we are in ourselves. That's the great miracle that God is working. That's the extraordinary thing that the gospel does. It makes us more interested in others than we are in ourselves, their goals, their ambitions, what they want. A number of years ago, I was reading in a Catholic prayer book, and I came across what was described there as a litany of humility. And I copied it into the back of my Bible, and it is my prayer as well. I'm far from achieving what this litany uh, suggests, but uh, it's a matter of prayer. It goes like this. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred to others, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebuke, from the fear of being falsely accused, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I, that others may be esteemed more than I, that in the opinion of the world others may increase and I may decrease, that others may be chosen and I set aside, that others may be praised and I unnoticed, that others may be preferred before me in everything, that others become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Lord, grant me the grace to desire it.
That's where it begins, you see. Grant me the grace to desire it. That, that ought to be our prayer. That's what Paul describes as the mind of Christ, that preoccupation with other people's interests rather than a, a self-absorption with ours. That was the mind of Christ, you see, who was God. Undeniably God, unquestionably God. And yet he set aside the rights and privileges and perquisites of deity in order to become a, a, a very ordinary human being. See, that's the mystery of of the incarnation. He, he never ceased to be God, and yet uh, he was he was fully man, a very ordinary person. He set aside the independent use of his deity. He combined in himself perfectly those two natures, the nature of God and the nature of man, and yet you didn't see the nature of God he was always a man dependent upon God. And what you saw was a man who had a servant's heart. And perhaps the best illustration or example of that is the upper room. Is in the upper room where our Lord got down on his hands and knees. And he crawled around on that dirty stone floor. And he washed the feet of his disciples. God of the universe on his knees serving. He said, I didn't come to be served I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That was the keynote of his life. He was dying every day. The cross was simply the consummation of a lifetime of dying for others, giving up his rights so that they could have theirs. That sounds very grim, but it's not. As we shall see, it is the source of true joy, because by that oldest and oddest of all paradoxes, we find ourselves by giving ourselves up. Now, what we have in the text that I'm going to read to you in a moment is three pictures of a servant, little little portraits, vignettes, uh, pithy descriptions of people that, that had the mind of Christ. Uh, Winston Churchill once described one of his colleagues in the parliament as a man who poured a minimum of thought into a maximum of words. We all know people like that. Paul's just the reverse. He's like Ogden Nash's character, Oliver Bolivar Bohm, who up and rendered a slender tome. Here's this, just a, just a word or two, just a sketch, but an exceedingly profound description of what it means to be a servant. He calls their attention to three people that they knew, that, that calls the Philippians' attention to three people that they knew very well, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Paul, we know well. He's the great apostle to the Gentiles. Timothy is less well known. He's Paul's protege, young uh, disciple who followed Paul around the uh, Roman Empire and uh, who was often left behind to nurture churches that Paul had established. And uh, Epaphroditus, who is vaguely familiar for being vaguely familiar. Uh, he uh, shows up here in this uh, text and in one other place in the book of Philippians, and that's all we know about him. But these three men are brought forward as examples of the kind of heart and attitude that is descriptive of the servant of the Lord. Now, let, let me begin uh, reading with verse 17. Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. See, nothing grim. About, about Paul's servitude. It brought him incredible joy. 
as I rejoice in it. That's the theme, as you know, one of the sub-themes of the book of Philippians. Eighteen times Paul uses either a noun or a verb that uh, denotes uh, joy. Joy and rejoicing is the undercurrent of this this book. Paul says, "I, I love to serve, love to pour out my life. gives me incredible joy. And his service, as he describes it here, is the service and sacrifice coming from your faith. It's not a you see, our, our servanthood is not random service. It's not merely that we go about meeting everybody's needs. Need never constitutes that call. And anyway, there are too, too many needs out there to meet. The world is bleeding from a thousand wounds. How can we meet all the needs? The needs are clamming. Uh, furthermore, for some people, need meeting is a need that they have. They're hooked on caring for others. Now, that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about serving others for the sake of Christ. Paul describes himself as your servant for Christ's sake. He is there to further their growth in Christ. That's why we serve. Uh, There may be times that we want to help elderly people across the street. That's one form of service. But, But that's really not what Paul is talking about here. He's really describing an attitude that looks for ways to nudge people closer to God, to increase their faith. That's what what life's all about. You understand that. It's not making money. It's not retiring in style. It's investing your life in others, loving God, loving others, helping them to grow in grace. That's that's what we're here for. There's no other reason for us to be here. That's what really matters in life. And so Paul says, when we serve, we serve to that to that end, that people may grow in grace and that they may comprehend and apprehend everything that God has in mind for them. Now, to that end, Paul says, I pour myself out. He uses an interesting metaphor, that of a drink offering. The uh, drink offering is described in a couple of places in the Old Testament, it, it, basically an over and above offering. It was an offering that was poured out on the major sacrifice uh, Worshipper would bring a lamb or a bullock or a bird or uh, a grain offering. And, and then uh, an alcoholic sacrifice would be poured over a glass of wine, actually a quite, quite a large quantity of, of wine, uh, over a quart of wine, would be poured over the sacrifice. Well, you know what would happen because of the volatility of, of the alcohol, the alcoholic content of the wine, it would go up in a burst. Poof. Uh, in Numbers, uh, the Jews were told, the Israelites were told that they were to offer strong drink, which would suggest an even higher alcoholic content than it would normally be found in wine. They, they could not distill back then. They didn't have that technology. But they did have ways of increasing the alcoholic content of wine. So this is strong drink, so that there would be quite an explosion. So you'd pour this over the... You know, you stand back and pour this over the uh, offering, and poof, up it up it would go. See, it's kind of like using one of those things you use to start start a fire with, start a barbecue with. You have to stand back. Well, the whole point is, Paul says, "Pour out my life, it's gone." See, it's expendable. But the really significant thing about this uh, offering is that it was the smaller offering that gave significance to the greater offering. It adds, as I said, it's an add-on. It added to it. See, made it more meaningful which is what our service is all about. See, we serve so that the greater sacrifice of Christ becomes more meaningful to people. We serve 
others for the sake of Christ. We have a fellow that shows up periodically around here to fix our copy machine because it's forever breaking down. He, he, he comes with all of his tools, spreads them out all over the all over the top of the copy machine. He works on it all day and he fixes the machine and he leaves. Sandy never asks him to empty the trash or sweep the floor while he's there because his job is to fix the machine. He's there for the sake of the copy machines. And that's what Paul is saying. Not, not random service, not just doing everything that people ask us to do. It's not always good for them, and it may not be good for us. We start to feel abused and used after a while. But what it does mean is focusing our life on helping other people to grow in their understanding of, of God, and to acquire more of, of him. That's what our service is for. We serve for the sake of Christ. Now, that's Paul. That's the first picture. Second picture is Timothy. We know a little more about Timothy. As I said, he was Paul's uh, uh, pro- protege, young disciple, whom he uh, first encountered in the city of Lystra on his first missionary journey, then on his second missionary journey took him, took him with him. His father was an unbeliever, uh, Greek. His mother was a believer. She was a Jewess. I have a feeling that it was not a happy marriage. I, Timothy comes across wherever you encounter him as a very shy, retiring, timid person. I, I think he had a very poorly developed sense of self-worth. Um, Paul says in Second Timothy, he writes to, to Timothy, uh, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, Timothy, but of power and of love and of a disciplined mind. Timothy struggled. With, I think, with his sense of self-worth, tend, tend to shrink back. People like that find it hard to serve. They're sometimes afraid that their service won't be accepted or they have some deep need to be understood and loved and cared for that really paralyzes them when it, when it comes to serving others. But Timothy had grown up by the time Paul wrote this letter and he'd become a true servant. Notice how Paul describes him. I hope in the Lord, I'm reading verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Listen to this. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Timothy had no peers. When it came to caring for others, there was no one like him. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That's sad, but it's true. That may be some of the truest words ever spoken. We all look out for our own interests, not the things of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. See there? He have it again. He has served with me as a son serves with his father. He's not saying, the turn of phrase is very significant. He doesn't say he served me like a son serves his father. He's saying he served with me in the cause of the gospel. See, again, service focused toward helping helping people know more of, of God. He says, you, you know what he's like. He really cares about people. And he has served with me consistently in the in the cause of of the gospel. He uses an interesting word in verse 22. Uh, that's translated proved in most Bibles or approved, you know that Timothy has proved himself. He was a man approved of God. 
as well as uh, approved uh, by the people in Philippi. It's an unusual word. Archaeologists digging in in uh, the Middle East often break into tombs or they dig into houses that have that have not uh, collapsed, and they find uh, vases that are intact. I have a couple back in my office. Some of you have seen them. If you turn them upside down and look on the bottom, on many of them you'll find this word inscribed. It's the Greek word dokimos. Uh, it, it's the equivalent of our good housekeeping seal of approval. Uh, the, the process of firing, you know, entails making the vase, and you stick it in the in the oven and it and it bakes and very often because of impurities in the in the clay the vase would crack and so, you know, all was not lost they just fill it up with uh, with uh, candle wax and they'd paint over it and they'd put it on the discount shelf and it was still usable but you wouldn't want to put anything hot in it because it wasn't approved but those vases that passed through the fire and didn't crack and were still useful and usable say fully usable were dokimos. They were approved. They'd turn them upside down and scribe on their dokimos. So I ask you and I ask myself, you know, does God find that inscribed on us anywhere? Are we approved? Have we been tested and approved? Are we useful? Are we willing to go anywhere, anytime, to be anything God wants us to be to anyone that we come in contact with? Are we that available? Now Paul goes on in verses 25 and following to draw us another picture, this time of Epaphroditus. I think Epaphroditus probably brought from Philippi the letter to which Paul is responding in this, in this epistle. He also was Paul's scribe. I think he was the one that Paul refers to as my true yoke fellow in chapter 4. Remember I read that passage a couple of weeks ago and, and Paul names the two individuals that were having a hard time getting along. Paul turns, and I think he turns to Epaphroditus who was taking notes as Paul dictated this letter and he said, I appeal to you, true yoke fellow, to appeal to these women to get along. And I think Epaphroditus just copied that right into the letter. He was Paul's yoke fellow, his colleague, uh, his fellow uh, fellow shepherd, you know, he, Paul describes him here as my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. He uses the word for apostle here. He's your apostle. Our word apostle is a, simply a transliteration of the Greek word apostello that means to send out, someone who's sent out. Paphroditus was uh, a man who was sent here and there. Paul sent him to Philippi, the Philippians sent him back to Paul. Paul sent him back to Philippi. He was a messenger boy, but he was there to serve Paul in his present situation. Paul was in jail, as you know, under house arrest in Rome, and also there to serve the people in Philippi. Paul says he's your messenger, your apostle, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. I read that this past week, and I thought of all the times that I've burdened other people with my afflictions, and I thought, shame on me. Here's a man who did not want to distress other people by burdening them with his ills. He was more concerned about their ills. He wanted to know about theirs rather than wanting them to know about his. 
I think that's what Paul means in Galatians when he says we should bear one another's burdens. But then he goes on to say everyone must bear his or her own pack. And he uses the word for a soldier's pack. Yeah, yes, we, when, when, when someone has a crushing burden that he or she cannot bear, then we need to help them bear it. But we've all got our own burdens to bear, and we don't have to belabor others with the, all the concerns that we have. We can take those to the Lord. You say, well, here's a man who is almost terminal. He almost died. And yet he, he did not want to lay that burden on the church in Philippi. He was ill, Paul says. He almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you you could not give me. There's another man who cared more for others than he than he cared for himself. Now, uh, in looking at this uh, portrait of these three men, I have one observation. Servanthood entails two things. It entails a willingness to be sent and a willingness to be spent. A willingness to be sent and a willingness to be spent. Those two components show up again and again in these uh, these portraits that Paul Paul draws for us. And my question to myself and to you is this. Are we willing to be sent? Are we willing to go anywhere God wants us to go? Isaiah describes his call this way. He says... Uh, The Lord said to me, Whom shall I send? And who will go? Isaiah says, Here I am, Lord, send me. Now my question to myself and to you is that, is that our heart? The Lord says, Whom shall I send? Send me. Here I am. In the words of a sign I saw once on a moving van traveling through the streets of Palo Alto, California, any load... Any distance, any time, any place. I think basically what that is, is a willingness to be available. And that's what really counts. As many have said, it's not our ability, it's our availability that that matters. God will take care of of our inadequacies, our weaknesses, our limitations. That's, That's never a problem to God. As a matter of fact, he always surrounds himself with a bunch of incompetence. That's his nature. But what he's looking for is servants who are willing to go any any time, any place, any load, any distance. Okay? To do whatever he calls us to do for the person that he brings into our life. As I, as I said, need does not constitute the call. I don't know where God is going to send you. I just know that if we make ourselves available, it's up to him to get us to the right place at the right time to talk to the right person and say the right things. But the, it all begins with it with our willingness to be sent. Paul says, I've sent Timothy, I've sent Epaphroditus, you sent Epaphroditus. Jesus said, so send I you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. That's my question. Are are we willing to be sent? Are we available? 
And are we available to invest ourselves in the kingdom of God? Because that's what servanthood is all about. As I said earlier, it's not a matter of random acts of service. It's a matter of serving others for the sake of Christ. To see them grow up, to see them achieve everything that that God has in mind for them. Uh, we men on Wednesday morning have, until we took the summer break, have been going through Second Timothy, and it struck me again in, in Second Timothy 2, Paul says, You, Timothy, be strengthened in the grace of God that's in Christ Jesus. It's a passive verb. He's not saying be strong, you know, grit your teeth and be strong. He's saying you be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And, in the end, connects the next verb. The things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men and women who are able to teach others also. So it's not not strength to run the decathlon. It's not strength to climb your way to the top of your company. It's strength to invest yourself in discipling others, passing on to others what what God is imparting to you, serving for the sake of Christ. And you may not have to go far. Being willing to be sent doesn't mean that you have to clap, clamp a pith helmet on your head and, and move to Madagascar. That's not the point. He may send you there. There's no end to the places God has in mind for us to serve. I think of some of my friends that I graduated from seminary with, some of my colleagues that I've ministered with over the years, and God has scattered them all over the world, and I praise God for that. So I don't know where God eventually wants you to serve, but I know that the place to begin is is at home with your nearest kin, perhaps, your spouse, your children, your next-door neighbor, your fellow worker. Uh, one of your students, one of your professors, um, some co-laborer of yours, your secretary, your boss. That's where you began. See? It's where Andrew began. Met the Lord, convinced himself he was the Messiah. First thing he did, according to John, is he went and told his brother Peter. So you, we start with with the nearest of kin. Charity begins at home. And you move out from there. As we prove ourselves faithful there, then God begins to move us into other areas of, of influence. And what that means, if we're willing to be sent, is that we also must be willing to be spent because there we have an enemy. We will be opposed. We will not always be appreciated or understood. Paul says again in Second Timothy... I suffer, therefore, the gospel is spreading. He sets up a, a cause and effect relationship. And as I suffer, others are brought in, into the kingdom. The point seems to be the, the way we handle the rigors and the stresses of life, the way we respond to hardship is part of the message that we send. It's inevitable that if you begin to spend your life for others, it, there's going to be some hurt and some harm that will come your way. But as I said before, this is, this is not a grim undertaking. There's an incredible amount of joy that comes from giving yourself away. As you begin to pour your life into others, you begin to discover that God pours himself into us, and, uh, and we're filled to the full with him, and there's just an enormous sense of satisfaction and joy in that. 
John says, uh, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. No greater joy. Nothing, he says, delights me more. And to hear that those I've invested in are going on with God and making progress. And you'll discover that's true. Though you will have to expend a great deal of effort, and it will cost you. Discipleship always costs. The returns are great, and the returns are eternal. Our Lord said that we have the possibility of investing into friendships. And when those people precede us into heaven... They will greet us and welcome us into eternal habitations. You know, our ultimate joy is the joy of, of, of running into people in, the, in whose lives you've invested while you're here on earth. I think one of the greatest delights of our life will be to, when we step into the Lord's presence and have someone spot us and they come over and say, do you remember the day that you shared the gospel with me and I responded and I'm here because of you? Or do you remember the day that you took me under under your wing and began to equip me and help me to grow and teach me how to study the scriptures and how to love God with all my heart. and That, that was what launched me into this ministry that I'm, I was involved in. And I just want to thank God for the investment that you made in, in my life. Do you think that won't bring joy? That will bring incredible joy. No one's going to ask us what our net worth in terms of dollars and sense will be when we stand in the Lord's presence, but what will give us that great sense of achievement is that we have spent our life, invested our lives in helping others grow in their relationship to God. And I'll tell you what, when, 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 you, when you make yourself available to God, exciting things begin to happen. That's what puts the fizz in the Pepsi. If you're bored with your Christian life, it's probably because you're not taking advantage of all that God has in mind for you. You're not really available to him for his purposes. Because when you make yourself available, I'll tell you, things get exciting. You never know what God's going to do next. As I've often said, the most predictable thing about the Holy Spirit is that he is absolutely unpredictable. You have no idea where he will take you or what he will do with you. Look at Andrew. He goes to his brother, Peter. I found the Messiah. A few days later, Peter stood, or a few years later, Peter stood on the steps of the temple, addressed his uh, countrymen, and 2,000 responded to the gospel. Peter became the head of the apostolic band. I don't know who led Billy Graham to Christ, but I know it was someone who just faithfully counted on God to get them to the right person at the right time to say the right thing. And, and look what God accomplished through that one contact. Maybe your whole life, you see, will find its meaning in one person that you led to Christ or one person that you helped to grow. And that person will be the individual that God uses in a much more overt and obvious way. You know, Paul himself, uh, I, I, I didn't have a chance to talk to Chris about what he did with chapter 1, and I didn't listen to his tape, so I don't know if he talked about this uh, uh, amazing turn of events. But remember what Paul said in first chapter of Philippians, the things that have happened to me have proceeded under the furtherance of the gospel. Did, did Chris talk about that? You know where Paul was when he wrote that? He's in jail. Well, he's under house arrest in his apartment in Rome, awaiting a... Uh, a trial before Nero. 
Paul says, the things that have happened to me have proceeded under the furtherance of the gospel. Do you know what he's talking about? Paul was a political prisoner. He was someone special. He was a Roman citizen. So he was chained in four-hour shifts to Nero's Praetorian Guard. These were the Green Berets of the Roman Empire. These were the choice, elite, picked young soldiers. These were the men that almost inevitably found their way into the Senate. These were the kingmakers of the Roman Empire. And they were chained to the Apostle Paul for four hours at a time. I asked myself, who was the prisoner? (laughs) And later on in, in Philippians, Paul says, and I can almost hear the chuckle in his voice when he said this to Epaphroditus, oh yeah, those of the household of Caesar greet you. (laughs) You know what was happening? One by one, those fine young men were finding Christ as their Savior and they were going back to the barracks and the gospel was spreading right at the heart of the Roman Empire. If you were on a committee that we put together here in Cole for evangelizing the city of Boise, you would never think of that strategy. Get yourself in jail. But see, life gets real exciting when we make ourselves available to God. He gets us to the right place at the right time to say the right thing to the right people. It may cost us. It cost Paul his freedom. But as Paul puts it in when he wrote to the Corinthians, I'm willing to spend and be spent for you. Life gets exciting. We're willing to spend and be spent. Or I think of that day when the Lord said to his disciples, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. They'd been evangelizing in the cities up in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. They got in their boat and they started across to the other side to Decapolis. Decapolis was a region of ten Greek cities. Hard place to evangelize. Been Hellenized, as they say adopted Greek philosophy. There's some Jews over there, but mostly uh, they were they thought like Greeks. They believed in the Greek gods and in the Greek mythologies. And the Lord says, we, we haven't evangelized over, let's go over this. They get in the boat. That's, that's when the storm struck, which I think was Satan's effort to try to try to thwart our Lord in his effort to evangelize that region. So he gets to the other side, he gets out of the boat, and guess who he met? That crazy, wild, insane, violent, demon-possessed man out of whom he cast the legion. Came raging out of the tombs. Actually, there were two of them. One of them was the center of our Lord's attention. Cast the demon out of the man. The man responded to the Lord's love, wanted to be his disciple, wanted to follow him. The Lord says, no, you go back and you, you tell your own people what great things God has done for you. Then our Lord got back in the boat. And they rowed all the way back across the Sea of Galilee to Caesarea. That's the only person that our Lord evangelized over there. A few months later, he came through that region and there were thousands of people that gathered to hear him preach. And again, I say, who would ever have thought up that strategy? To find the the most insane man in town, a man sitting on a park bench, stark naked, (laughs) and this becomes this man becomes the the point man for evangelizing the whole city of Boise. As my old grandmother would have said, "Who would have thunk it?" But see, that's what happens. 
when you give your life to God, when you make yourself available to Him. Life gets downright exciting. And what's said of these people can be said of us. We're approved of God. We have incredible joy as a result. And I don't know if you picked it up or not, but Paul says of Epaphroditus, this quiet servant, whom we don't even know much about. He just shows up here in one other place in Philippians. Honor such men as these. Who do we honor? Well, you know, the professional athletes, the movie stars, the political figures of our day. Who, whoever honors some quiet person, some man or woman who's content to just quietly go about serving and doing what God calls them to do. But Paul says, honor them because God honors them. They matter to him. Their lives have meaning. Let me tell you a story I picked up this morning. A friend of mine came to see me after the morning service, and she told me this story. When her mother was a a very small child, her father, this woman's grandfather, abandoned the family. He was gone for 20 years. Nobody even saw him. Some years later, her mother discovered that uh, her ex-husband, the man who had abandoned her, was in a hospital, dying of cancer. He was a member of some Eastern cult. This woman was, she, she felt she needed to do something. Scared out of her wits. It had no contact with her husband, 20 years. She went into his hospital room and she began to pour her heart out to him. He's very hard, very cold, very indifferent. When she mentioned the name of Jesus, he raised up out of his bed and he shouted at her, Get out of the room! Get out! And so she left. She went downstairs and she sat in the lobby and she began to pray. And she sensed that God was saying to her, go back. She said, I can't. I can't go back. He said, go back. I'm sending you back into that hospital room. I want you to tell that man about about Jesus. And so after three hours struggling, wrestling, she went back into the hospital room found a heart that was prepared. And she said to her to her ex-husband, do you know that Jesus has forgiven your sins? He said, no, tell me about it. And she had a chance to tell him about the, the tell him the good news, that because her Lord had died on the cross for him, his sins were forgiven, and he acknowledged Christ as his Savior. He asked for forgiveness. And because she was willing to be sent and to be spent, she has a friend ahead in heaven. A friend who will welcome her into eternal habitations. A servant is one who is sent and one who is spent. Some of you may know the name Grace Clarkson, who's the author of a book entitled Grace Grows Best in Winter. She was afflicted with arthritis through much of her life. Uh, almost always in pain, and yet a woman that God used uh, greatly to touch the lives of others. And she has written a hymn, which uh, we sometimes sing. It's entitled, So Send I You, which links together these two components, a willingness to be sent and a willingness to be spent. I want to read the verses of this hymn, and then I'd like for Bill to lead us as we sing it. 
So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. So send I you to bind the bruised and broken, or wandering souls to work, to weep, to wake, to bear the burdens of the world aweary. So send I you to suffer for my sake. So send I you to loneliness and longing, with heart a-hungering for the loved and known, forsaking home and kindred friend and dear ones. So send I you to know my love alone. So send I you to leave your life's ambition, to die to dear desire, self-will resigned, to labor long and love where men revile you. So send I you to lose your life in mine. So send I you to hearts made hard by hatred, to eyes made blind because they cannot see, to spend, though It be blood to spend and spare not, so send I you to taste of Calvary. As the Father hath sent me, so send I you.